This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Warning, the Savage Nation contains adult language, adult content, psychological nudity. Listener discretion is advised. And now, the world's most exciting podcast, The Savage Nation, home of borders, language, culture, and here he is, New York Times best-selling author and National Radio Hall of Fame inductee, Michael Savage. Well, folks, welcome to the free Savage Nation podcast, and I'm going to keep it free for all of you, but for those of you who have been requesting that we provide for you an ad-free podcast. We're going to keep doing that. And in addition to getting the ad-free podcast, which many of you want, for less than the price of a beer in a bar a month, only three ninety nine a month, you're going to get an occasional monologue from me. Maybe I'll read from one of my novels. You're going to get an archive piece going back to 1994. Whatever comes up, you're going to get on an occasional basis. Details will be seen on my website, michaelsavage.com. I'm going to give you a link right now. And if you want to join, all you got to do is go to glow.fm slash savage premium. Glow.fm slash savage premium. Glow.fm slash savage premium. If you click on it, you're going to see a cartoon of me. Join Savage's exclusive club with the rate and you just click and you join you're going to love it i appreciate it very much i hope you join the savage exclusive club i want to thank you very much for supporting the savage nation podcast either the free version or the paid version your patronage it's appreciated it's that simple well we have a special treat for you today on the savage nation podcast you're not going to believe this i'm using a new microphone a um <laughs> it's an old microphone I had many studios when I was in the radio business, and many of you were loyal listeners, right? Well, one of the studios I had been using, I haven't been in in a long time. I don't go up there. It's kind of too sad for me to go there. But I was going up there to set up a new Skype studio for my Newsmax TV show, and I looked at the microphone, and it was a Mate RE20, and I said, wait a minute, the others are RE27s. What is this? And I realized that the RE20 is a microphone I had had up there for, 20, I don't know, 15 years? I, it's hard to believe how many years went by. It's got to be 15 years, this RE20, which is an earlier version, different magnets than the RE27. The RE27 has a much sharper sound than it's good for music. The one I'm using now on the podcast, which is a test, is an RE20, which is a more muted, a deeper sound. People used to say, God, you sound good in that studio. So I hope you enjoy today's podcast on my old RE20 microphone for your listening pleasure. So here we go. So let us begin with today's podcast, which I'm calling The Dying of the Light. Is America's decline permanent under Biden or is Biden the pallbearer of our casket? I don't know. Only time will tell. We know that uh, the old adage about Afghanistan being the graveyard of empires may in fact turn out to be true, especially under this criminal regime 
Now, before I begin, I want to go back for a minute. The reason I started this podcast, The Dying of the Light, is because I've been thinking about this subject for a couple of weeks, and I went and ordered a, an 1,100-page volume of... I haven't read the whole thing, to be frank with you. It's 1,150 pages long to show you how smart I am. It's The Decline of the West, two volumes of one by Oswald Spengler. So right away, those of you who are literate say, ah, Spengler. Now, most of us have heard of Spengler, but we have not read him. Almost no one I know has actually read Spengler. He wrote The Decline of the West in 1918, and he's long been quoted, where it is assumed he predicted that the West would eventually decline and be taken over by, quote, the Asiatic nations, which is what he said. I believe he's one of the greatest historians I've ever read, and a fine writer, by the way. It's a phenomenally philosophical piece that Spengler wrote. And I'll quote from it here and there, which is what I had intended to do for this podcast anyway. And it goes all the way back in history to uh, Athenian times, Roman times, numbers, world history. I, I won't summarize it for you. You can get a copy of it yourself and, you know, read it in passing on the beach. It's, it's uh, 1,150 pages long, The Decline of the West. And I perused it, and I have all my post-its here and there. That is phenomenally interesting. I was most interested in reading The Decline of the West from the point of view of how did he perceive the Jews throughout history? And the reason I focused on that is because there's a misunderstanding in history and a big lie that Hitler relied upon Spengler to philosophize his hatred for the Jews and then, of course, to uh, exterminate six million Jewish people. In reading this book, the opposite is true. He actually has nothing but positive things to say about the Jewish people in his book, The Decline of the West, written in 1918. And I'm going to read some of it to you later because it's worth listening to. So you say, well, I'm not interested in the Jews. Well, you ought to be because the Jewish people have always been the canary in the coal mine. And, of course, in Spengler's book, you will see he sees the Jewish people who they are. But before I get into that, I turn to another one of my uh, I, one of my touchstones, Oliver Goldsmith, because I remember reading and I read I read from Goldsmith many times on my radio show, Oliver Goldsmith, the the, uh, oh, the the Silent Village, and I don't have the poem the Silent Silent Village. But as I was looking for Goldsmith's poem, the Silent Village, which was about how farms were emptying out, the land was emptying out in England during the Industrial Revolution and the land was laying fallow. And then I was reading what Goldsmith had to say about the natural revolution of things. It was very interesting. And uh, in, th in this analysis, he says that humanity moves through periods of enlightenment and barbarism that are not confined to particular nations or even continents, but are rather governed by natural laws that affect civilizations unconnected with each other. And I'm reading now from an analysis by David McCracken, written in 1979 at the University of Washington, as he's writing about Goldsmith and the natural revolution of things. So this is like a little bit of a college graduate course for those of you who are interested in learning and history. And so this analysis goes on to say the peak of one period of enlightenment occurred around 1900 B.C., the time of the Chinese emperor Yao and the Egyptian Sesostris. The next occurred around 580 550, the time of Confucius and Pythagoras. Most of us have heard of Confucius and Pythagoras, the Pythagorean theorem we learned in high school. And the most recent around A.D. 1400 
with the Emperor Yanglo in the east and the Medicis in the west. We all heard of the Medicis. Thus, Len Chi Atangi tells us, quote, we see politeness spreading over every part of the world in one age and barbarity succeeding in another. At one period, a blaze of light diffusing itself over the whole world, and then another, all mankind wrapped up in the profoundest ignorance. And we are assured that it will always continue so. Where are we now in America? Is it politeness spreading over every part of the nation or barbarity succeeding wrapped up in the profoundest ignorance? It seems to me with the advent of social media and the degenerate scum in the entertainment industry, we are now in the profoundest ignorance in human history. But I'll go back to McCracken's review of Goldsmith. And he says, the explanation for this large movement of rise and fall is not to be found in local military, political, or economic forces, coincidentally related, but rather in what he calls the natural revolution of things. So let me just read a little bit more. He writes, the decay is surely from nature and not the result of voluntary degeneracy. In a period of two or 3,000 years, China seems at proper intervals to produce great minds with an effort resembling that which introduces the vicissitudes of seasons. They rise up at once, continue for an age, enlighten the world, fall like ripened corn, and mankind again gradually relapse into pristine barbarity. At the end of an age when autumn is over, he says, fatigued nature again begins to repose for some succeeding effort. And he says the word revolution here means not a change in the state of a government or country, to use Johnson's definitions, but the course. And again, he's talking about Oliver Goldsmith's work in this essay on Oliver Goldsmith's essay, The Natural Revolution of Things. I'll be back in a minute to talk about Spengler's The Decline of the West, and we'll have a little bit more right here on the Savage Nation podcast. Don't go away. Michael Savage, a host like no other. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. I want to read from one of my favorite poems that I read many times on radio in the years I was on radio from Oliver Goldsmith's The Deserted Village. And it was written about the time of the Industrial Revolution when people were leaving the farmlands and moving into cities to work in factories. And there's so much in this poem. But here's some of the lines that I'm going to read from. He said, I remember this so well. Somebody, when I was young, used to quote this to me, a very wise man, a friend of mine. Ill fares the land to hastening ills a prey, where wealth accumulates and men decay. Princes and lords may flourish or may fade. A breath can make them as a breath has made. But a bold peasantry, their country's pride, when once destroyed, can never be supplied. And he goes on and says, A time there was ere England's griefs began when every root of ground maintained its man. For him light labor spread her wholesome store, just gave what life required but gave no more. 
his best companions innocence and health and his best riches ignorance of wealth but times are altered trades unfeeling train usurp the land and dispossess the swain along the lawn where scattered hamlets rose unwieldy wealth and cumbrous pomp repose and every want to opulence allied and every pang that folly pays to pride and he goes on i'm not going to read any more from it it's a little mawkish in places i get it but there is so much in this poem that is worthy of reading again and this was read uh, in high school by the way when i was young oliver goldsmith 1700s england he wrote such beautiful stuff the deserted village and i hope that you've enjoyed my reading from it i mean i could i could go into this in a little bit more maybe it's worth it since we're talking about it right now maybe it's worth uh, looking into this a little bit what was this about and why am i reading it in this discussion of the decline of america based on spengler's the decline of the west what does that have to do with anything well let me look into it a little bit more okay i'll i'll, I'll do a little bit more for you on this because maybe we should talk about but what is it about and why do we need to pay any attention to it well it idealizes rustic life and country folk and he depicts the inhabitants of towns and villages as simple good people and that people from the city are nasty and <laughs> supercilious the man of wealth and pride takes up a space that many poor supplied space for his lake his parks extended bounds space for his horses equipage and hounds so it was it was a very politically charged poem that did cement goldsmith's literary reputation which had first been established by the traveler in 1764 and the vicar of wakefield in 1766 see how great english literature is not what the vermin say it is goldsmith by the way dedicated this poem to sir joshua reynolds the famous portrait painter who was also his close personal friend incidentally so for those of you who love literature and history and poetry and art and civilization, I've given you a little bit today, a taste of some of the things that interest me and thus far. And now I want to move on to something else, which I will do in a moment. The Savage Nation. It's savage on demand. So now we move into The Decline of the West by Oswald Spengler, more particularly the decline of America. Are we finished as, a, as an empire? Well, that, that's another story for another time. I want to go into Spengler's the, the Decline of the West because most of us heard about Spengler, as I said earlier, but never read him because it's 1,500 pages. It's very dense reading. It's extremely well-written. And I could start in many different ways in Spengler, but I want to focus on one part to, to give it some meaning for a couple of reasons. We're talking about the destiny of a civilization, and it's our civilization. And we're part of the West European American civilization. And that's a big story. Is it over? Is China on the rise? For sure. Will China take over the world? In my opinion, absolutely. It already has. They own us lock, stock, and barrel, and we have so many weak people and lying people and corrupt people who were never punished running this nation and all Western nations that I don't see how we survive. We had Trump, who was sort of a Napoleon in some ways, which is why he was loved and hated. He was a strong man, and those of us who love strength loved him. We know he had flaws, big deal. 
We're living in a vicious world of thugs, bums, rapists, and murderers, as you can see with uh, Biden's friends, the Taliban, and they were afraid of Trump, and he kept them in line. But now we have something different than Trump, and we're in real trouble. We, if you were to paint the portrait of Joe Biden, Joe Biden's presidency, it would not be a portrait of his face. It would be a portrait of the back of his head leaving a stage. That is where we are. That's the identity of America today in the face of Joe Biden. So instead of going into the entire story of this book, The Decline of the West, I'm going to focus on one subject, as I said earlier, a subject I'm interested in that should be of interest to others because the Jews are uh, the canary in the coal coal mine. And I um, focused in this book initially now because I I can't read a whole book in one day or one week or one month. I've had the book for two months. I focused on his view of the Jews for a number of reasons, and one is which I had read years ago that Hitler relied upon Spengler for his view of the Jews, and that Spengler said terrible things about the Jews, and that was a justification for him hating Jews and the Holocaust, which is totally false. So I'm going into page, I don't know, 1300, where he's talking about Pythagoras, Muhammad, and Cromwell and the decline of the West, and I'll read pieces from it. For those of you who like history, or you can skip this and go on to something else, but I really love reading this because it's so interesting. Again, this is from Oswald Spengler's The Decline of the West, written in uh, 1918, 1918, where he talks about the historical change that was coming within the great historical history of civilization. So he starts by saying, the religion of Jewry too is a fellow religion since the time of Jehuda." Ben Halevi, who, like his Islamist teacher, Al-Ghazali, regarded scientific philosophy with an, un- with an unqualified skepticism and in the Khazari refused to it any role save that of handmaid of the orthodox theology. This corresponds exactly to the transition from middle stoicism to the latter form of the imperial period and to the extinction of Chinese speculation under the Western Han dynasty. He then says, still more significant is the figure of Moses Maimonides, who in 1175 collected the entire dogmatic material of Judaism as something fixed and complete in a great work of the type of the Chinese Li Qi, entirely regardless of whether the particular items still retained any meaning or not. This is a hell of a statement. In fact, Spengler's sentences are so complex that you have to sometimes read them three times to understand how deep this man is. Collected the entire dogmatic material of Judaism as something fixed and complete in a great work of the type of the Chinese Li Qi entirely regardless of whether the particular items still retained any meaning or not. Unbelievable. Neither in this period nor in any other is Judaism unique in religious history. Though from the viewpoint that the Western culture has taken up on its own ground, it may seem so. Nor is it peculiar to Jewry that unperceived by those who bear it, its name is forever changing in meaning. For the same has happened step by step in the Persian story. Again, a sentence that requires reading three times. He then goes on and says, both Jewry and Persia evolved from tribal groups into nations of Magian caste without land, without unity of origin, and even so soon with the characteristic ghetto mode of life that endures unchanged today for the Jews of Brooklyn and the Parsis of Bombay alike. 
This is in 1918. The Jews of Brooklyn and the Parsis of Bombay alike. In the springtime, first five centuries of the Christian era, this landless consensus spread geographically from Spain to Shantung. This was the Jewish age of chivalry and his Gothic blossoming time of religious creative force. The latter apocalyptic, the Mishnah, and also primitive Christianity, which was not cast off till after Trajan's and Hadrian's time, are creations of this nation. It is well known that in those days the Jews were peasants, artisans, and dwellers in little towns, and big business was in the hands of Egyptians, Greeks, and Romans, that is, members of the classical world. About 500 begins the Jewish Baroque, which Western observers are accustomed to regard very one-sidedly as part of the picture of Spain's age of glory. The Jewish consensus, like the Persian, Islamic, and Byzantine, now advances to an urban and intellectual awareness, and thenceforward, it is master of the forms of city economics and city science. Tarragona, Toledo, and Granada are predominantly Jewish cities. Jews constitute an essential element in Moorish high society. Their finished forms, their esprit, their knightliness, amazed the Gothic nobility of the Crusades, which tried to imitate them. But the diplomacy also, and the war management, and the administration of the Moorish cities would all have been unthinkable without the Jewish aristocracy. Again, I'm reading from Spengler, The Decline of the West which was every whit as thoroughbred as the Islamic. And he goes on to talk about uh, the Islamic society at the time and the rabbis. And I can't read it all to you because you probably are losing interest in this by now. I know the average listener. I have a great sense of timing. I'll pick up here and there. But Spain and Morocco, he writes, after all, contain but a very small fraction of the Jewish consensus. And even this consensus itself had not merely a worldly, but also and predominantly a spiritual significance. In it, too, there occurred a Puritan movement which rejected the Talmud and tried to get back to the pure Torah. The community of the Quraites, preceded by many a forerunner, arose about 760 in northern Syria, the selfsame area which gave birth a century earlier to the Paulician iconoclasts and a century later to the Sufism of Islam. Three Aegean tendencies whose interrelationship is unmistakable. It's amazing to read this stuff. But in that period appeared also an outcome of Jewish Sufism and suggestive in places of Swedenborg, the chef d'oeuvre of rational mysticism, the Yasira, germane in its Kabbalistic root ideas, to Byzantine image symbolism and the contemporary magic of Greek second-degree Christianity and equally to the folk religion of Islam. Now, I'm going to pause for a minute because in this passing, in this sentence, he passes on the word, the Yesira. Being originally a scholar, I went and researched the Yesira and wound up buying a book that cost me a fortune, which explains this mystical idea, the Yesira, which in a nutshell states that all of life derived from the 44 letters of the Hebrew language. I know from letters. That's called mysticism. In other words, where, where did we come from? We came from the letters of the Hebrew la- uh, alphabet. It's hard to believe this stuff. But this is philosophy. And we go on again into the decline of the West Spengler in some 895 pages now. And we're talking again 
about the Jewish people and his view of them, where he says, when a new situation was created, when from about the year 1000, the Western portion of the consensus found itself suddenly in the field of the young Western culture. The Jews, like the Parsis and the Byzantines and the Muslims, had become by then civilized and cosmopolitan. Whereas the German Roman world lived in a townless land and the settlements that had just come or were coming into existence around monasteries and marketplaces were still many generations short of possessing souls of their own. Isn't that an amazing sentence? Those of us who live in the suburbs, which have no souls, we all know that only cities have souls. And of course, you look at San Francisco and New York, the souls have been killed by liberal government. Once the most beautiful cities on earth have been absolutely destroyed and turned into uh, piles of dung by liberalism. While the Jews were already almost fellahin, the Western peoples were still almost primitives. The Jew could not comprehend the Gothic inwardness, the castle, the cathedral, nor the Christian, the Jew's superior, almost cynical intelligence and his finished expertness in money thinking. There was mutual hate and contempt due not to race distinction, but to difference of phase. I have to pause right here. Listen what Spengler wrote. There was mutual hate and contempt, he means between the Jew and the Christian in the year 1000, due not to race distinction, but to difference of phase. And he italicizes difference of phase. He means phase of history. Into all the hamlets and country towns, the Jewish consensus built its essentially megalopolitan proletarian ghettos. The Judengas is a thousand years in advance of the Gothic town. Just so, in Jesus' days, the Roman town stood in the midst of the villages on the lake of Gensareth. And I go on about young nations. And he says, it was in this period that the legend of the wandering Jew arose. It meant a good deal for a Scottish monk to visit a Lombard monastery. And nostalgia soon took him home again. But when a rabbi of Manz, in 1000, the seat of the most important Talmudic seminary of the West, or of Salerno, betook himself to Cairo, or Merv, or Basra, he was at home in every ghetto. In this tacit cohesion lay the very idea of the Magian nation, although the contemporary West was unaware of the fact it was for the Jews, as for the Greeks of the period, and the Parsis and Islam, state and church and people all in one. This state had its own jurisprudence and what Christians never perceived its own public life and despised the surrounding world of the host peoples as a sort of outland. And it was a veritable treason trial that expelled Spinoza and Uriel Acosta, an event of which these host peoples could not possibly grasp the undermeaning. And in 1799, the leading thinker among the Eastern Hasidim, Signor Salman, was handed over by the rabbinical opposition to the Petersburg government as though to a foreign state. We need to take a quick break. We'll be right back on the Savage Nation podcast. The Savage Nation. It's savage, uncut, unfiltered, and raw goes on now this is spengler going on and i'll read a few more pages i know this is very dense reading but i find it fascinating it's astoundingly interesting jewry of the western european group had entirely lost the relation to the open land which had still existed in the moorish period of spain there were no more peasants 
the smallest ghetto was a fragment, however miserable, of megalopolis. And its inhabitants, like those of hardened India and China, split into castes. The rabbi is the Brahmin or Mandarin of the ghetto. And a coolie mass characterized by civilized, cold, superior intelligence and an undeviating eye to business. But this phenomenon, again, is not unique if our historical sense takes in the wider horizon. For all Magian nations have been in this condition since the Crusade period. The Parsi in India possesses exactly the same business power as the Jews in the European American world and the Armenians and Greeks in Southern Europe. The same phenomenon occurs in every other civilization when it pushes into a younger milieu. Witness the Chinese in California. Remember, this was written and published in 1918. He says, witness the Chinese in California where they are the targets of a true anti-Semitism of Western America. In Java and in Singapore, that of the Indian trader in East Africa and that of the Romans in the early Arabian world. In the last instance, indeed, the conditions were the exact reverse of those of today. For the, quote, Jews of those days were the Romans and the Armenian felt for them as apocalyptic hatred that is very closely akin to our West European anti-Semitism. The outbreak of Aedes in which at a sign from Mithridates, a hundred thousand Roman business people were murdered by the exasperated population of Asia Minor was a veritable pogrom. He goes on. Again, we're reading from The Decline of the West by Spengler. Many of us have heard of this book. We have never read the book. And we all know, well, there's something about the decline of the West and that Asia will take over. But I'm focused only on the, his view of the Jews. And I'll go into this a little bit more because I'm reading from it now. And I guess I could wrap it up in the next couple of pages here because it's fascinating stuff. But this is not a scholarly podcast. But I am a scholar by training. So let me read a little bit more for those of you who wish you had gone to grad school or did go to grad school and didn't study any of this. Over and above these oppositions, there was that of race, which passed from contempt into hate in proportion as the Western culture itself caught up with the civilization and the difference of age expressed in the way of life and the increasing primacy of intelligence became smaller. But all this has nothing to do with the silly catchwords Aryan and Semite that have been borrowed from philology. Now, this is important because those Nazis out there think that there's such a thing called an Aryan and such, and Hitler, they think... Uh, hated the Jew because they weren't Aryans. It's, it's complete rubbish. Again, I'll read from Spengler. But all this has nothing to do with the silly catchwords Aryan and Semite that have been borrowed from philology. The Aryan, quote-unquote, Persians and Armenians are in our eyes entirely indistinguishable from the Jews. And even in South Europe and the Balkans, there is almost no bodily difference between the Christian and Jewish inhabitants. The Jewish nation is like every other nation of the Arabian culture, the result of an immense mission. And up to well within the Crusades, it was changed and changed again by accessions and secessions en masse. One part of Eastern Jewry conforms in bodily respects to the Christian inhabitants of the Caucasus, another to the South Russian Tatars, and a large portion of Western Jewry to the North African Moors. What has mattered in the West more than any other distinction is the difference between the race ideal of the Gothic springtime, which has bred its human type, and that of the Sephardic Jew, 
which first formed itself in the ghettos of the West and was likewise the product of a particular spiritual breeding and training under exceedingly hard external conditions to which doubtless, we must add, the effectual spell of the land and people about him and his metaphysical defensive reaction to that spell, especially after the loss of the Arabic language, had made this part of the nation a self-contained world. This feeling of being different is the more potent on both sides, the more breed the individual possesses. Listen to this sentence again. This feeling of being, quote, different is the more potent on both sides, the more breed the individual possesses. And then he says, it is want of race. Emphasis on the word want. It is want of race and nothing else that makes intellectuals, philosophers, doctrinaires, utopists, incapable of understanding the depth of this metaphysical hatred, which is the beat difference of two currents of being manifested in an unbearable dissonance, a hatred that may become tragic for both. Did you hear what he said? A hatred that may become tragic for both. He predicted the Holocaust. The same hatred as has dominated the Indian culture in setting the Indian of race against the Sudra, period. And I'll finish right here. During the Gothic age, this difference is deep and religious, and the object of hatred is the consensus as religion. Only with the beginning of the Western civilization does it become materialist and begin to attack Jewry on its intellectual and business sides on which the West suddenly finds itself confronted by an even challenger. Now I'm going to close again by reading that sentence again. When did the hatred begin? Only with the beginning of the Western civilization does it become materialist and begin to attack Jewry on its intellectual and business sides on which the West suddenly finds itself confronted by an even challenger. And I'm going to pause right here from Spengler's The Decline of the West. Again, I, I bought the two-volume set. I couldn't wait for it to arrive, and it's, it's like six, I don't know how, 1,100 pages. And I focus today on his view of the Jews and the Jewish people through this period of history for one reason. We talked about race, where race hatred came from, basically competition uh, is what he's saying. Just to summarize, he's saying that the hatred of Jewish people arose, the hatred arose as a result of competition. And it was only when the Jews became competitive that they become hated. See what I'm saying? And so... Where does that leave us? It leaves us wherever you want it to leave you. Make believe I'm your professor of philosophy for today. We've had a nice seminar together, and we can all go home and think about this. And if you're really interested in it, don't get the Cliff notes, because Cliff is not a note taker. Cliff is just a machine. I am your teacher. I am your philosopher. I am Michael Savage, and we're talking today about the dying of the light. The dying of the light is America's decline permanent under Joe Biden? And I read from Otto Spengler, The Decline of the West. I hope you've enjoyed this philosophy today. Thank you for listening. Home of Borders, Language, Culture, The Savage Nation. The following segment goes all the way back to the year 2007 when a caller to my nationally syndicated radio program asked me to define what American culture was. I think you're going to enjoy listening to my definition of what American culture is right now on the Savage Nation podcast. 
Any topic is a uh, fair game here. Okay, Columbus, Ohio, Fatty. Fatty, welcome to the Savage Nation. Yeah, Michael. Um, I haven't read your book, so forgive me if you've addressed this already, but how do you define culture and, more specifically, American culture? It seems like it changes, right. I mean, pretty much every few years or so. No, no, it actually doesn't. The people change, but the culture doesn't change. That's the whole... You see, this is the problem that most people are having. They think that multiculturalism should change America. It should not change America. The core values of American culture are set in stone. The people change. The race, the racial makeup changes. But in the old days, they would assimilate to the American culture. Now, what is the American culture? I have defined this. The American culture, when I say borders, you know what that is. When I say language, you know what that means, English only. When I say culture, many of you have been hoodwinked into believing that we're a multicultural nation, which we are not. We are a nation of many races and many cultures. That is true. It has been true from the beginning. But in the past, people would come over and become Americans. Now they come over and they want you to become them. They want you to speak Spanish. They want you to act Muslim. They want you to give up going to the church and going to a mosque. Uh, this is not going to go on in this country much longer. We're going to have a revolution in this country if this keeps up. These people are pushing the wrong people around. Just watch extreme fighting and you'll see what the what the white male is capable of. That's all I can say to you. Just understand why extreme fighting is becoming popular in this country. Because the rage has reached a boil. If they keep pushing us around, and if we keep having these schmucks running for office, catering to the multicultural um, <clears throat> people who are destroying the culture of this country, there will be a revolution in this country. Guaranteed. The people, the white male in particular, let me talk specifically. The white male in particular... The one without connections, the one without money, has nothing to lose, and you haven't seen him yet. You haven't seen him explode in this country. And he's still the majority, by the way, in case you don't know it. He is still the majority. No one speaks for him. Everyone craps on him. People use him for uh, cannon fodder, and he has no voice whatsoever. He has nobody speaking for him. So he goes to these extreme fighting uh, events. Take a look at them, and you'll see what the white male is capable of. And you're going to find out that if you keep pushing this country around, you'll find out that there's an ugly side to the white male that has been suppressed for probably 30 years right now. But it really has never gone away. But that doesn't answer your question. What is the culture? It's very simple. The culture of this nation is built upon several founding documents. One, I'm sure the ACLU will find problem, a problem with. That's called the, uh, the United States Constitution. That's a founding document. The Bill of Rights founding document. Uh, the uh, Bible, that's correct. The Bible, the rules of the Bible. The entire nation was built about around the rules of the Bible. Not the rules of the psychos. Not the rules of the perverts. Not the rules of the atheists. Not the rules of the psychos. Not the rules of the perverts. Not the rules of the atheists. But the, the Christian rules. The Christian Bible built upon the Jewish Bible. So if you want to ask me what the founding documents are, those are the founding documents, and that's the culture of America. Now, did I say that Buddhism shouldn't be practiced? No. Did I say Hinduism shouldn't or couldn't be practiced? No. Did I say that Islam shouldn't or couldn't be practiced? No. But in the past, the other religions were practiced, but they did not try to dominate the nation, which is fundamentally a Christian nation. It is not a Buddhist nation. It is not a Hindu nation. It is not a Muslim nation. This is primarily has always been and always will be primarily a Christian nation. The rest of the people certainly are welcome to practice their religions, but they're not welcome 
to uh, deny Christianity its place in, uh, in the family of man. Now, I, I've given you a long, long story on this, but there are other documents that go back to the Magna Carta, but that would require an education beyond the sixth grade, so I'll stop using l- large words. Michael Savage, a host like no other. We conclude the podcast today with a segment called The Dance of Death in the West. This was done in 2015, and it appeared in my book, Government Zero. If you substitute the word Obama in here with the word Biden in here, you will see that exactly the same dance of death is occurring under Biden as it did on Obama, which is not surprising to most of you who follow politics and have come to understand that Biden is just a stooge of the very same radical leftist forces. And so let's listen again to a dance of death in the West done in 2015, where I conclude by saying this is interesting. I say Obama is not insane. He's stoned on the orthodoxy of the progressive left. Obama, meaning Biden and his supporters are drunk on their ideology. They think they're going to create a progressive utopia by continuing their attack on all Western values. And then I conclude by saying this is precisely how great civilizations of the past declined and eventually fell. They rejected the values that made them great and degenerated into narcissism and selfishness. They kept on partying until they were too weak to defend themselves. Then the unthinkable happened. They fell. And now let's listen to the original recording for 2015 of A Dance of Death in the West from your prophet, Michael Savage. There is a dance of death in the West, an actual death in the Middle East, courtesy of the Islamo-fascists. Meanwhile, the Caesar in the White House entertains himself with a thousand sycophants, partying on behind closed doors as if the Islamo-fascist hand will not touch him. He thinks he's protected from this new plague, the black death of radical Islam. We are facing something the West hasn't had to deal with since the wars of religion in the 16th and 17th centuries, When those religious wars ended in one place, they began in another. They lasted for over 100 years. The same thing is happening right now. The radical Muslims are on the warpath, and they are against everyone else. They are against Muslims who are not as fanatical. They are against the members of all other religions. They think they are going to take us back to some pristine religious period in human history that never actually occurred. It is all complete rubbish. These faith warriors live lower than the pigs they despise. They kidnap and rape eight-year-old girls and say the Quran authorizes it. They're not purists. They're psychopathic killers. They're Nazis in headscarves. They aren't leading a religious revival. They're trying to take us back to a state of barbarism that has been extinct for 1,200 years. This is a barbaric revolution, and we have a man in the White House who denies its existence. But whether he chooses to acknowledge it or not, it's going to continue until someone puts a stop to it. Jonathan Sachs called the fight against radical Islam the defining conflict of the next generation. He likened radical Islam to a starfish. When you cut off a spider's head, it dies. But when you cut off the leg of a starfish, the starfish can regenerate it. Radical political Islam is a starfish. If you defeat ISIS or Al-Qaeda, they will merely come back under another name. Why would any government bring in unvetted Muslim immigrants at a time like this? It would seem that only an insane prince would do this to his country. 
But Obama is not insane. He's stoned. He's stoned on the orthodoxy of the progressive left. Obama and his supporters are drunk on their ideology. They think they're going to create a progressive utopia by continuing their attack on all Western values. This is precisely how great civilizations of the past declined and eventually fell. They rejected the values that made them great and degenerated into narcissism and selfishness. They kept on partying until they were too weak to defend themselves. And then the unthinkable happened. They fell. Those are the opening words from my prophetic book, Government Zero. No truer words have been spoken yet on this insane president, this insane Hillary, this insane Sanders, this insane liberalism that is going to kill us all. Well, thank you very much for listening to today's podcast. I hope you've enjoyed and learned something from it. And I want to remind you of something that I think is important for you to know. We have over 280 Savage Nation podcast episodes available to you absolutely free. I'll say that again. You can go back into this vast library of over 280 episodes and listen to any one of them or several of them at your leisure. So you never have to be without the Savage Nation. Thank you very much for listening.